Uh, one thing that I just wanted to reiterate that Sarah talked about was the baptism class that's going on today. If, if you are a junior high and under, I have a kid junior high and under that wants to get baptized, it's at 12.30 after the third service, right in that building across the way over there. If you are high school and older, after every single service, short informational meeting about what baptism is and then what we kind of need from you for that. And if you are not getting baptized, Guys, it has been two years since we did baptisms, and we want to gather as a community and just celebrate together. So if you don't have anything on your calendar for Labor Day weekend, you know, put this on Sunday at 1 o'clock to come. We're going to feed you all the health food of tri-tip and bread, and you can work it off later as you run around the pool. No running around the pool. As you walk around the pool vigorously, yelling at your kids. Don't break your neck. And just, just joining this celebration together because we want to be able to celebrate together. It'll be the first time we've gotten to do that kind of, I think, since uh, Christmas Eve last year. So I'd really like to do that with you. Welcome to Element if you are new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. They're also on the communion tables around the room. And also on the communion tables are the short sermon notes we're doing for the summer where they're only half sheets with just a couple questions. But on the front side, you get a picture of the minor prophet that we're looking at. Again, this is Habakkuk right now. We don't know if he actually was a ginger or not, but apparently he's ginger on this. On the back, you get a couple stats about who he was, like a baseball card. On the top, the verses we're going to go through today. And on the bottom, just a couple questions to go back through what we're talking about later so you can kind of reflect on what we do today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events in Uversion. will come up by GPS in your smart device. I think there's like three people doing Uversions in our area right now, but just expand it. Click on us, uh, and we will come up, and you will get a sermon notes. You'll get verses. You'll get the questions, the announcements, really everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, answer I, will, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would take us and teach us to understand that we can cry out to you, that we can speak to you, but that we also must come to a place where we become humble and listen to the words that you are saying to us. And that when you speak and when your spirit leads, we would listen and that we would follow in humble faith, that you would guide us to be the people you were calling us to be, and we would hear and listen and follow. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so we are doing this uh, series through the Old Testament books called the Minor Prophets. That's the last 12 books of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, So far, we've done just one a week, except for the last one that we're covering, this guy named Habakkuk, and we're going to cover him over six weeks. Habakkuk doesn't follow like this linear timeline of where we're at. So if we were into the last one, that would have been Malachi, but Malachi... We did like a few weeks ago. Habakkuk sits right in the middle of all those minor prophets. And if you want to know when they spoke and when they taught, you can grab a timeline we have on all the communion tables. If you're in the U version, there's a link in that. If you're watching online, there's a link at the bottom of the video. And you can see that timeline of where most likely many of those prophets spoke. So you can kind of see where Habakkuk fits in there. But we're ending with the book of Habakkuk because he really relates to our world today. Because what has happened of where Habakkuk is, is there's been a succession 
of just horrible, idolatrous kings in Judah. And now they finally got a good one. And this good one is bringing reforms, drawing people back to worship God, cleaning up the temple, restoring worship of who God is in Israel. And then this guy gets killed on a battlefield with the Egyptians. And one of his sons ends up in power, who is very idolatrous, and leads the entire country away from God again. And Habakkuk is calling out to God, God, do you see the problems in my country? Do you see the laws that are being passed? Do you see how hard it is for our people that want to worship you to be able to worship you because no one in any government official place is helping us to do that? Won't you see it? Won't you do something about it? Why is it so hard? And God says, yes, I see it. And what I'm going to do is send the Babylonians down to kill all of you and the ones that don't die to take off into captivity into Babylon. And Habakkuk says, God, that's a bad plan. Isn't there, isn't there another plan that you could have in the midst of this? Why take someone who is worse than us to discipline us? Which is kind of how we always feel, right? We're always comparing ourselves to other people and thinking other people are worse than us. At least I'm not like so-and-so. And the great theme of Habakkuk is going to come down to this idea of faith. And faith doesn't mean we muster up a bunch of emotions to believe in something we may or may not think is actually true. Faith means deep trust. That's what it means. We trust who God is and what he is doing even when we don't get it. So you have a Bible, open to Habakkuk chapter 2. That's on page 508 if you have an element Bible. And Habakkuk, again, questions what God is doing in his country. God answers with that answer. Habakkuk questions God again. And then what he does after his second questioning of God is he sits back and waits for God's response. So Habakkuk 2.1, again, this is what we started with. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He is waiting for God's answer to his second complaint. And God's answer is just brilliant. But we're only going to cover a couple of verses of God's response today. Next week, we'll cover the majority of God's response, so you got to come back to hear it. But what we're going to do today is kind of just take a side step. If you've been here the last couple of weeks with Habakkuk, you've seen all the historical things that take place, why Habakkuk is calling out. Today, we're going to take a couple of verses, like I said, and just step to the side and focus on one thing that God has says to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4, which is the righteous will live by faith, because this comes down to, the, to be central to who we are as a people of God. Are we going to trust God? Because it's not God way or our way. It's just his way. And throughout the course of the book, Habakkuk is going to learn how to trust God. And I think throughout the course of the book, we could be the same people, those who learn faithful trust in who God is. In a New Testament context, faith is very important. Uh, back when we, I took you guys through this book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller, I told you the reformers define saving faith essentially in three parts. They said it kind of works like this. First, there's this thing called notitia. Notitia means knowledge, knowledge. And for what they said, that is knowledge about the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the scriptures. It's why at Element, we talk about the gospel every week. We talk about what Jesus has done to rescue and save us. Our faith needs an object, and the object is going to be defined by our knowledge of it. So let me just explain that a little bit. Uh, some people today will say, God is what I feel like he is. Well, that's not God. Okay, that could be the pizza you ate last night. You could be like, oh, my God is a volatile God. Take some Tums. Your God will calm down. Okay, uh, it's like people will say these weird things like uh, everybody goes to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven. Everybody goes to hell. Nobody goes to hell. There is a God. There isn't a God. This thing's God to me. That thing's God to me. What do we need to know? We need to know the truth. Notitia, the truth. And the scriptures reveal to us the truth 
truth. And the scriptures are only about us in so much as it shows us our sin and our necessity for Jesus. The scriptures are about and point to Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says to these people, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. In them, what does Jesus say? These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the truth that all the scriptures point to, so we can have real knowledge of who he is. Now, the second thing that they talk about is this thing called a census. And I know in America, you think, oh, a census, who lives here? How many people? No, a census means assenting to. We assent to, we have intellectual acceptance of the truth about Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. We receive it. We, we stop trying to fight it. And I do believe that in the end, all this is a work of God in our life, that too often we want to rebel against what we know is actually true in order to trust some man-made construct that elevates us and diminishes God himself. We need to know that God has revealed himself in the scriptures and we assent to it. And third, here comes our word, fiducia, which is faith. Faith, this is personal reliance and trust in God himself, ultimately in Jesus and the good news. We trust Jesus as he has been revealed in the scriptures. And many times in our life, this becomes a process where God leads us deeper and deeper into understanding who he is better. But these three things really kind of go hand in hand as we walk through our lives following Christ. We have this information of who God is. We are assenting to it and we live in humble faith. And real faith is meant to filter down into every aspect of our lives and everything that we do. It should it filter down into our diet. Yes, it should filter into our diet. Should it filter into our sexuality? Yes. Does God actually care what we do with our baby-making parts? Yes, he actually cares about that. How about our money? Does God think that everything that we have was actually given to us by a gift from him? Yes, he actually does think that. How about our friendships? Does God care who we connect our lives to in meaningful ways? Yes. Is this thing even on? Really? You know, how about our mouths? Does God care the words that we use as we interact with one another? Yes, he actually does. If our faith doesn't filter down into every aspect of our lives, we are told that our faith is useless. Our faith is meant to be practical. It's not just some esoteric thing that sits in our heads or in our hearts. It's lived out. How we live and trust and understand what God has done is going to be lived out in our lives. This is why we must understand that Jesus is the truth. And the scriptures point to Christ. And don't get me wrong, information alone doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. We are told in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons believe. They know who Jesus is. They have information, but they don't follow. Habakkuk society is in a place where they might even say, oh yeah, we're the people of God, even though they're not really following God. Just like today, there's a lot of people who will take the term Jew and they just use that as like a nationality. It's like they do not mean they actually have faith in who God is and what God has done. They can have the information, but they've stopped living in faith and many times they just mock him. Same things for Christians today. Some people today will call themselves a Christian simply because they're born in America and that's not how it works. When we hear the truth, we are meant to be a people who embrace that truth because our natural reaction is to shut out the true God and go with what feels good rather than what is true. And information, that information, until it is practiced as faith, until it's assented to and lived out in faith, will never bring transformation in our lives. God's truth must begin to change us as it does for Habakkuk. So you following so far? I know it's a lot. It's like I've been to a college course already. Okay. 
Let's do the podcast, you'll get it again. Okay, so as I said before, if you boil everything down in the world to the simplest forms, there's really only two kinds of people who have ever lived in the history of the world. Uh, the first one are those who trust themselves and their own ability to save themselves. Uh, this would be the Babylonians. This would be the Judeans that we're looking at right now. This many times would even be us. I think a lot of people who call themselves Christians take a lot of pride in themselves and think they can save themselves. Again, in the Bible, this is called pride. It's, I am better. I am smarter, I am wiser, I'm more enlightened than anybody else. And these are typically sometimes the people who try and sound very enlightened. They will say things like, oh, we need to coexist, not realizing themselves that someone doesn't agree with their definition of coexist, they don't really want to coexist with them. Uh, sometimes people will say things like, oh, all roads lead to the same place. It sounds very nice, but if you don't think all roads lead to the same place, they think there's something wrong with you. See, it's not as inclusive as it actually sounds. Uh, sometimes people are very snobby and think that only those from a particular education or school or socioeconomic status, whether it's rich or poor or middle class, can determine what's best for others. This, can, this pride can include anybody from any political persuasion, and it's where we think our reasoning is better than God's, who some may believe in or not believe in. The reality is, is that we often think that our reasoning and our answers is better than God's revelation that has been given to to us, and that makes us prideful, and it will push people further and further apart. Think about uh, the political issues in our culture today, right? We have these ideas. This is how it's supposed to be. And a lot of people aren't speaking about the gospel into that at all. It's like, this is what we have to do. This is how we're going to figure it out. And what do those things do? It keeps pushing us further and further apart because we think this thing is the answer instead of the gospel being the answer to mankind's woes and ills. God's words can be hard for us at times, but God is smarter than we are. That's why we trust him. I think atheists and skeptics today have a tremendous amount of faith in things they cannot prove. No life after death, absence of the presence of God, and instead they trust this three pounds of meat in their head that God gave them. And it's like we need to think beyond our own pride, beyond our vision to see what God has done to take the information that we have and send to it and then live in faith. But anyway, that's the first type of people. Uh, they trust in themselves and not in what God has done. And I would say there are even people who call themselves Christians who fit that definition. The second type of people trust God and his ability to rule over us as a gracious gift that God gives us his righteousness as a gift to be in relationship with him, that despite our many sins, that he is still good to us. And he calls us into relationship with himself that we get to receive grace and humble faith. Because again, at the bottom of our lives is faith in something. And how we live is going to be born out of that faith. How we treat others is going to come down to what we either believe about God or don't believe about God, whether we trust ourselves or trust Him. And a simple question is, if you look through the history of the world and everybody who has ever lived, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Who? God in the flesh comes to live and die in our place, in our stead, for our sin, to give us his righteousness, to bring us back to life, to rise from the grave for us. He never sins, and yet he never uses that to belittle us as a people who consistently and constantly fail. God says to us what he will say in Habakkuk 2.4, which we'll get to in just a second, that the righteous will live by faith because we trust him. Who do the self-righteous trust? themselves. And if you are someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, today my question is simple. Who do you trust more, you or Jesus? And if you say you, how's that worked out for you in your life? How? Because so often we burn our lives down and be like, why did God allow this? And God's like, okay, that's not how that works. But, and, and we are always blaming, trying to blame somebody else. If we trust ourselves, we're going to crash and burn our lives all the time. So 
I know, long intro. Habakkuk 2.1, here we go. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is what answer am I supposed to write down to my second complaint? He's like, God, here are my questions. I don't understand what you are doing. Can you please tell me what you are doing in this? And I will write that down and I will follow you. Again, he doesn't understand, but I will follow. That right there, that's faith. And so God says, this is what's going to happen. I still am going to send the Babylonians, but eventually I will deal with them too. I will deal with all people and all sin because I have a plan. Habakkuk 2.2, and the Lord answered me. So this is how God starts. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now God says this because the Babylonians aren't going to be there for maybe 15 to 20 years after Habakkuk speaks. So God's like, it's still coming. You may not see it, but don't doubt it. This is also how we get the book of Habakkuk 2,600 years later because God says, write these things down. It's a solid proof the book is indeed a sacred revelation from God. He wants it delivered to others. He says, write this down, hand to the bike messenger and say, ride like the wind. And the bike messenger takes off and rides like the wind. This is the idea that God isn't just speaking to a prophet. God is speaking through this prophet. And this is how you get this sacred revelation to us in 2021. We believe and we pick up, pick up the scriptures. We're actually reading what God wants us to read and what he wants us to know. God uses the scriptures to speak to us. Why? So we can have the information about who he is. So we would ascend to it and we'd be living in faith. God wants this revelation to go out, but he says it's going to wait for its appointed time. My judgment is coming. You may not see it, but you must wait for it. Why? Because God wants to allow people time to change. This is where you are. This is where you're going. That's a cliff. Turn your car around. That's not a good place. God is not slow. He is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that. We know the end of human history. We know where the story is going. Habakkuk knows where his country is going to end up. But sometimes people say, well, it's taken a long time. I, I don't see how that's going to happen. Today, sometimes people say, well, the Bible must not be true because these things haven't happened yet. Guys, they'll be true when they happen. That, that's how it's going to work. Verse 4, God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. He is speaking about Babylon here. This is pride, staring at himself. And God then says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. That is a juxtaposition. Pride versus humble faith. And this is what I said, two types of people, trust God or trust yourself. Our life is either bent towards God or it is bent towards ourselves. And today there is this pervasive idea in our culture that if we just thought more of ourselves, we could be so much more. That's not necessarily true. We would just end up being more prideful. There is a difference between confidence and and pride. We are called to be a very confident people. Why? Because of what God has done. We could have confidence in Him and His work and not pride in the things that we do. Our value comes from the fact that God loves us and that God has rescued us and brought us to Himself. And I believe that confidence leads to humility and humility can be stronger than pride. In uh, Jeremiah 9.24, out of the NIV, God says this, But let him who boasts, boasts about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. Because we can have some great ideas, but who gave us the mind to have those great ideas? God did. The root of all sin ends up being pride, and there's a difference between confidence and pride. Pride makes us want to be God. Pride makes us want to call our own shots and say what's in and what's out and what's good and what's not. We can have more confidence because God is able and we are not. 
We should be a people who bow to God and not that God has to bow to us. And this is the premise of God's response here. He wants his people to be those who live in confidence and humility before him and have faith. And instead, the Babylonians, the Judeans, many times us, have too much pride and too little confidence in him. Verse 5, God then says, Moreover, one is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as shoal, that's the grave. Like death, he never has enough and gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Again, he's speaking about Babylon and using this metaphor. He says, Proud people are never satisfied. They just want more and more and more. I think proud people usually work themselves into unhappiness. I think they do that. It's like Ecclesiastes. We, you know, we once thought if we got to a certain place in our lives, we'd be satisfied. It's like Solomon talks about this. If I got, you know, the education I wanted to, the age I wanted, the income level I wanted, the house I wanted, and every time we get that next thing, we're still never satisfied because our lives are not meant to be satisfied with anything other than Christ himself. We're always trying to trade up, get that new TV, get that new car. Stuff doesn't satisfy. Anything that is not Christ is just stuff. It's like that old adage, uh, we buy stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. That's how we tend to live a lot of our lives, and it's sad. You got two kids, one kid from a million dollar home, and he's got like the best video games and nannies and cars and the best therapist, and yet he's miserable. And then you got a kid who's poor, who's playing with sticks and dirt in the street, and yet he's happy. Why? Because it's not what's in our hands, it's what's in our hearts. That is what God is trying to say. It's like if I have a piece of chocolate and someone owns a chocolate factory, who's happier? The person with the mouth. That's who's happier. That's who's happier. One commentator says, knowing God gives you a mouth to enjoy the chocolate. The Babylonians don't have a mouth. They're not enjoying anything. They're living in pride, taking more and more and more. That's how the Judeans live, and that's how a lot of American society lives today. And God calls us instead to be a humble people who trust him. We are to trust God. That's the great theme woven throughout the Bible and especially in Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Those words of the righteous living by faith, God takes and just blows this up throughout the entire scriptures and especially the New Testament scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 or Genesis 15 verse 6. It says that Abraham, this royal guy, God promised him a child and land to be a blessing to the world and Abraham took what God gave him. He ascended it. He believed it and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul talks about this. Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those words of Habakkuk explode in the ministry of a guy named Paul. Paul starts off 600 years after Habakkuk as a guy named Saul, breathing out threats against the church when it starts. How dare you tell anybody they could be in relationship with God? How dare you let those people in the church? They're not good enough. They're not moral enough. They're not right, right enough. And yet, what is the church preaching? The righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, that gets a hold of Paul, who was once this self-righteous and proud man. And he's given eyes to see and a heart to love the truth and the grace of the gospel. And his life changes. And all of a sudden, the entire church begins to change as he goes out and takes this message out. You fast forward, you know, 1,500 years after Paul, and you get to a guy named Martin Luther, who's one of the impetuses for the reformation of the church. God actually saves Martin Luther through this illumination of Habakkuk 2.4 through Apostle Paul in Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17, Paul says, In it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith from faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is the understanding of how we are saved and how we live. Our lives will be lived out by what we have faith in. 
Martin Luther. He is a monk. He's a professor of theology, and he believed that salvation and loving relationship with God is something you must work hard to merit. You have to do that. Luther had this lawyer's mind, and he looked for a way to defend himself against his own humanity. But the more he saw himself, he realizes God's going to airtight case against me. Because if you look around the world at humanity, there's one thing we can all agree on, and that's we're bad. Okay, we can all agree on that. The only thing we know for sure is that we're terrible. It's, it's like there's all kinds of things God calls us to, and we don't want to live the way he calls us to. We don't want to be in relationship with people. What if we get burned? We don't want to forgive. They should seek my forgiveness first. We don't want to step out and do the right thing and live in peace. We want people to live in peace with us first. And Luther realizes his whole life, he has had these thoughts and these words and these deeds all showing how imperfect he is before God himself. He starts to deny himself all these worldly pleasures, you know, to seek to pay God back for his sin. He becomes, as I said, a monk. No wife, no sex, no kids. And much of that stems from the idea that there is sin in the world. It has pulled me away from relationship with God and therefore I need to punish myself. He would sleep on a hard floor. He would eat terrible food. He had intestinal problems the rest of his life. Some monks would whip themselves on the back and tear their flesh so they would bleed and hurt and be in pain because I will pay God back for my sins. That's how terrible I feel. And I think when you look at today, it's interesting to me that there's a lot of teenagers who cut themselves. Because I think deep inside, there's this idea that we know we have this sin and we're broke from relationship with God and there's something that must be paid for. And yet when they go and talk to their therapist, their therapists don't tell them this. They say, oh, you need to think more about yourself and have a higher self-esteem. But the more we look at ourselves, the more we realize how broken that we are. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. How do I pay for this? What do I do? Martin Luther, again, Saxon monk, before you started your work day, you would go and confess your sins to the priest who would give you absolution, and then you'd go to work. Luther's mind worked so much, he obsessed so much over his sin that he spent so much time in the confessional that all the other monks started to think he was lazy and just wanted to get out of work. But he wasn't. Every day he's like, I'm, I'm wicked. And so he would go to confess, and he'd confess that. Then he'd go, oh, wait a minute. But my motive for the thing I confessed was only self-centered. So I'm going to confess my motive for my confession. Then you go, oh, wait, my motive for my confession. is So he confesses motive for his motive for confessing. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Then my motive for my motive for my motive for confessing. See, he's not lazy. He's actually being consistent with his faith. That's what he's being consistent with. This faulted theology where he's painfully aware of the imperfect person that he is, that he will be forever unfit to stand before the presence of a holy God. So what happens? How does he change? How does he become like this impetus for the church reformation? Well, in Rome, there are these stairs called the Holy Stairs, the the Scala Sancta. This is a picture of what they look like today. Uh, They didn't have handrails back then, which you can see in the picture. Anyway, uh, so people would go to this place in Rome. There are 28 marble stairs that was believed to be the stairs that Jesus walked up when he was in front of Pontius Pilate. Uh, They take these stairs, they move them from Jerusalem to Rome. So the pilgrims would go up these stairs on their knees, begging God for forgiveness in hopes of receiving a promised indulgence from the church. So Luther does this as well. Maybe this will be the thing. He may have even done this numerous times. We don't know how many times he actually did it, but Luther shows up to make this ascent again, and he's hoping to be rid of this burden of guilt. Oh man, if this just be gone and I can be in relationship with God again, I can obtain the favor of God. And he is going up these stairs, his knees becoming bloody by the time he starts to get to the top. And all of a sudden, the words of the prophet Habakkuk through the apostle Paul come to his mind. The righteous will live by faith. 
The righteous don't live by going up these stairs on their knees. The righteous don't live by whipping themselves. The righteous don't live by cutting themselves. The righteous live by faith. It's the information he had so long in his life, but he never actually finally just believed it and assented to it. And there he does. And he stands up and he walks back down those stairs. And he goes back to Germany, and all of a sudden, everything starts to change. This scripture of Habakkuk 2.4, spoken in Romans 1.17, really is the, the firebrand of the Reformation. And Luther is the one who kind of takes that and runs with it. This is what he says. I, Dr. Martin Luther, unworthy evangelist of our Lord Jesus Christ, confess this article of faith, that faith alone justifies before God without works. Without works, not walking up on my knees, not hitting myself with a whip, none of those things. And then Luther's understanding, again, Habakkuk 2.4, quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17, he says, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. That even our faith is a gift of God, as God calls us to himself. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as is written, Habakkuk 2.4, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and I enter paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Isn't that crazy? Martin Luther gets saved out of a verse from this tiny little book of Habakkuk that God is revealing in his heart and drawing him to himself. Luther started with what we'd call to be a legalist. He thought that if I was committed to morality and spirituality, well then, I'll be on God's team. That's what a lot of religious people do today. I'll be moral and good because God is moral and good, and therefore I'm on God's team, not realizing we're never going to be moral and good enough. The apostle Paul was like this until Jesus got a hold of him, and then he realized, oh my goodness, I'm the chief among sinners. And that brought him humility and confidence in who God is in his rescue of Paul. Today we think that sins are these horrible things. It's like murder and rape and you're a Canadian, you once had a mullet, you don't know how to use the roundabout, you, you have five cats, you know, all, all these horrible things. Sin is anything that pulls us out of relationship with God. That's what sin is. And if you look in the New Testament, you'll see most awful sinners are usually the ones who are trying to be the most moral and spiritual. How weird. Ones who say, oh, I don't kill anybody, but with their words and their thoughts, they do. Oh, I don't lust after a woman, and yet they let these women control their minds and how they live their lives. I, I tithe to God out of everything. They pick a flower, they take one of the petals, and they, and they give it to God. Who could be more devoted than that? And those are the guys who kill Jesus. And if you are really moral and you read the New Testament scriptures, you might see the Pharisees and be like, that's got to be my team. Those are the best guys there. Look how moral they are. And you flip it into the gospel and you're like, oh my goodness, my team killed Jesus. That's not good. That is not good. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 10, James says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. What James says is that there's not good guys and okay guys and satisfactory guys and bad guys. He says, it's just Jesus and the rest of us. That's all there is. So how do we ever come to a place of salvation? Romans 1, 6 says, and you were also among those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. We are called to belong to Jesus Christ. God does a work in us where we hear that information he has given and God enables us to assent to it. So we live in faith of what he has done. Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. What is the gospel? That Jesus came and lived the life that we were meant to live 
that we never could. He died our death in our place to give us his life and his righteousness to bring us back into relationship with God. I believe that the gospel, because of the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, that's amazing. So then what happens with that? Well, Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, For in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Wow! That's amazing. We trust Jesus. The gospel becomes powerful in our lives, and it makes us belong to him. We are people who simply need to trust him in the midst of this. We trust his righteousness. And when we do, what Jesus does is he takes away our condemnation and gives us his love. He takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. He takes away my death and he gives me his life. Paul was just like Martin Luther. He ends up in a place where he walks away from all of his own efforts to merit righteousness on his own. And he simply embraces by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to him as a free gift. And our question for us today is, are we willing to walk away from all the things that we do? All of our morality that we think is centered in who we are and what we do and simply begin to live in humble faith and confidence of what God has done to rescue us. Because when we focus upon ourselves and all those things, we are constantly going to be at odds with everyone else around us. When we come to a place of simple, humble, saving faith in what He has done, we will point to the gospel, and that is what will draw all people together. Christ is the one who unifies us. And this is why we are a people who speak of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul will walk through the purpose of the law itself. And he will twice, twice in the midst of it tell us that the righteous will live by faith, not by the law. I mean, he will explain the purpose of God's law. His demands upon our conduct are indeed good. But it's simply impossible for us to do this, that we cannot live a life of perfection. The law is good, and we are bad. So God's law reveals how sinful we are, how perfect Jesus is, and it's meant to send us running into his more than capable arms to trust him for our salvation. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to show us, us, so we'd see us. And we would throw our hands up and say, you're right, I can't do this. And so Jesus says, that's okay, I did it. Stop trying to trust you and trust me. And he gives the grace to be the person he always calls us to be as image bearers in the world. Our sin has been paid for. We no longer have to work it off. That is grace. The Babylonians didn't understand that. The Judeans didn't understand that. I think a lot of people today who call themselves Christians don't really understand that. We think that, that our faith, that God loves us because of all the things that we do. God doesn't love us more because of all the things that we do. Should we do moral and good things? Yes, we should. Don't think I'm not saying that. But we are not saved by those things. They don't make God love us. God already does love us. And He's calling us to Himself. And the reason that we get to come into relationship with Him is the good news of the gospel, that God calls us to himself. Because there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who have a ton of information, and yet we've never believed or assented to it. And yet God, I think, is calling us as a people to himself, to trust in what he has done. And this is the central premise of why Jesus comes to rescue and save us. I mean, in the end, it's not just saving us. God is going to redeem the entire world. But he starts with the sons of God the daughters of God, calling us back to himself in the gospel. I'm going to invite Sean to come up and do all the stuff of moving things on the stage since, so I don't have to. No, I'm going to invite the band. <laughs> uh. And as, you know, as, as we're kind of doing this, 
we come to a place of communion every week at Element because it's a reminder of what God has done to rescue and save us. It, we, we give you time to kind of think about this before you come and grab the cracker and, and the juice because we want to take moments to reflect and remind ourselves that it is not our righteousness that saves us. It is, it is not our morality that saves us. It is God's good news that rescues and saves us. And so today, it's why you take a cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. And you drink the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for us. Because he is the one who saves us. Not our works, not our efforts, not our going upstairs on our knees or whipping ourselves. Or it is his grace that saves us. And that, as I said, should make us a confident people because we'll talk about who he is in all things because of his rescue. And it makes us also a humble people because he is the one who saves. If you need prayer today, Maybe God today is speaking to your heart and calling you to trust who he is. Uh, you can grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. We'll connect you with somebody to, to pray with you today, to kind of walk through some of these things and so we can understand better the saving grace of who Christ is. Um, every week what we do is we talk about giving because God gave so much to us, so we have offering boxes. They're next to every door. We don't pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done in us, just like song, just like prayer, just like communion. But I would also encourage you to grab uh, these sermon notes or maybe, you know, take the the version one and just as a couple simple questions on there. Today over lunch, maybe uh, dinner with some friends this week, kind of start talking through some of those questions. What is confidence in God versus confidence in us actually look like? What does humble saving faith look like as it is lived out in our lives every single day? Where are the places where maybe you're like Luther trying to do it all on your own and God actually gets a hold of your heart in that place and calls you to himself and you just set everything aside and say, yes, I'll follow, I believe, I trust. And then where are the places in our lives where we, you know, we've said that and yet we just kind of start to veer off course a bit, starting to trust in our own selves again rather than him. And how can we bring one another back to that place of thinking about Christ in all things and trusting him? Because we are called to be a people who are God's hands and feet to the world, who speak of the good news of who he is. Let's be those who speak of that so that we would be the ones who bring the good news, like the feet of those who bring good news to the world around us, because our God is good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to really be a people who have confidence in you and not pride in ourselves. I'd ask that you'd reveal to us the places and ways that we've taken pride in ourselves and not had confidence in you. I ask that you would move us to see all the things that you have done in the scriptures. That we'd be a people who simply begin to assent and live in faith. That we would look at our lives and see how we live And that would in turn help us to see what we really believe about you. And all those places where we are self-focused, that you'd expose those and steer us back to your saving grace over us. Teach us then to go out in confidence of who you are and, and what you've done and speak of your saving grace to the world around us that we would be a people who are known by our confidence first in you above all things. Because you are a great God who has rescued us and brought us to yourself. And I ask that you would teach us to live as your children in this world, glorifying you in all things, as we live in humble, saving faith of what you've done. 
And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. Now, as we do, you know, every week, uh, we're going to drop the shades a bit, make it a little bit darker, not to make it gloomy, but to give you a moment to kind of maybe push some things around you aside, and you can ask some of those questions maybe of God right now, where you are. God, where have I trusted in my own morality? Where have I trusted in myself? Where am I looking to me and not to you in my life for, for answers, for faith? Maybe ask God to show you all the things that he has been revealing to you your entire life. And you actually come to a place where you today begin to assent to those things. And you would live in those things. Because I think there's a lot of people today who God has rescued and saved. And yet so often we are not living in what he calls us to because we still refuse to assent in many ways to the things that he has shown us. Let's be a people today who just take a few moments and allow God to lead us to himself again.